Welcome back, people. It's study pipe time. How's it going, Andrew? It's going well. It feels like it's been about 10 years and two months and three days since we last talked. Seven years a slave. <laughs> yeah, right? Or is it 12 years? <laughs> That's the prequel. <laughs> right? I'm waiting for that one. It's going to be my opening night. Man, that's that movie, 12 Years a Slave. The scene when he apologized to his family, you know, at the end for something that wasn't in his control <laughs> and he's crying. That got me, man. That destroyed me. That was a, that was a heavy hitting movie. Maybe never like Michael heavy Fassbender hit. again. Yeah, dude, he played a villain, man. A mean, <laughs> mean villain. I know. You should have mixed more of that into Magneto. That guy can act. <laughs> yeah, he can. <laughs> So today's episode is not 12 Years a Slave or the the prequel. It is, what is it, Andrew? Today is film reel. And uh, what that's going to consist of is us kind of going off the cuff. I prepared some provocative questions for Mr. Zachary. And, uh, provocative, no, wow. Pro- provocative, provocative film questions. He has no idea what they are. And I'm going to put them on the spot for your guys' enjoyment. Yeah, on the spot, going in blind, no prep, kind of just direct, honest. I mean, I guess I could lie my way through some of these, but I'll uh, I'll give give it straight shot, straight answers because you're up next. So be nice. You're <laughs> in a future episode. It'll be you in the hot seat. I intend to not be nice at all. This is going to be hell. And don't worry, guys. If he lies, I'll call him out. Yeah, because you probably <laughs> know from. The many years we've known each other. Yeah, for for as much as we talk about film on the podcast, we talk about 10 times as much film off the podcast. <laughs> that is true. That's very <laughs> true. Okay, so how many questions do you have? I prepared 15 questions. I don't know if I'm going to ask them all. Damn. But I'm, I'm going to kind of ask them and get a series going and, and then pick and choose the one I want to ask you after. Cool. Okay. Yeah, this is more free-form, open concept we're experimenting with, right? It is. It is. This is our first film reel episode. Uh, I really like the name, right? That was the name that you chose. And uh, um, I don't know if – I mean, that was one of the options. I guess when <laughs> this goes live and the title's up, that will be <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> that might be our first line of the night, guys. <laughs> It <laughs> could be. <laughs> Depends how I feel after the bottom of this pint. All right. And I, I got my uh, my four-pack of Kilt Lifter from the local Four Peaks Brewery in Phoenix, Arizona. And I am rocking the Eye of Sauron from 8-Bit Brewing Company in Temecula. There you go. Isn't it is like a sour IPA. What's that? <laughs> Didn't you say that was like 9.5%? Yeah, it's, uh, let's see, 9.1%. Got two pints on deck, so we're in for a good time, I think. <laughs> that's, a, that's a proper fade right there. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, what, five Dos Equis or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, or seven Heinekens. <laughs> so 15 questions on the spot. You have good beer, I have good beer. Let's see what happens. All right. Let's start with, off with a. I'm going to give you a softball question right off the bat. Is the rise of the streaming platform killing the magic of cinema? That's a good question. Um, no, I don't think it is. I 
Mm, that's hard. It, I mean, that's a nuanced, I think, answer. So I think the rise of streaming and streaming platforms make the big blockbuster spectacle movies that, you know, are shown, exhibited in cinema or in, in movie theaters more fantastical, more wonderful. Uh, you know, I mean, look at Barbenheimer, for example. I don't know that either film is really a product of streaming, uh, really, but I, I think when it counts, it really counts now because so much content is really tried out, I mean, on, on streaming. It, it's kind of, you can produce a lot of content, you can get it out there, you're not really worried about the box office, so the back of the napkin or really sophisticated financials that you're doing to support, uh, you know, a film, you change the calculus of all that. You know, I think right now you get films in the theater that have to be big budget appeal to wide audiences, but I don't necessarily think that takes away from the magic of cinema. Now, do I miss getting lost in kind of a lower budget artsy, risky project in a cinema in a big movie theater. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do miss that. I think you only get movies exhibited now in movie theaters that are, you know, superhero films, big blockbuster films. You know, they're the safe films. They're not the push in the boundaries kind of films. And when they are, like Bo is afraid, they flop big time, you know. Um, can't, so, can't that movie didn't make anything. <laughs> no, it didn't. But, you know, as we said in the very first episode of this podcast, that was a movie that I think, I, I mean, I am glad I saw it in a movie theater. i glad I did not see that for the first time on <laughs> you know, iTunes or Netflix or anything like that. You know, we should, uh, we should start like a, a podcast series, like a little playlist within this called Zach and Andrew are afraid and talk about all the yeah. things that make us old men and afraid of the changes in film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty progressive I, in, in terms of what's happening with the industry. I mean, pop culture, I'm always attacking as a whole, you know, this, I'm always saying pop oh. culture is dying and whatnot, <laughs> but no, I think that the magic of cinema is still there. It's just, there are, it's like a theme park. The theme park exists, but what they did is they got rid of all of the side, you know, small side rides that had the shorter lines and they've invested all their money into the biggest roller coasters and the biggest rides at this theme park, thinking that's the only reason people come. And I think Barbie and Oppenheimer challenged that in a way. I mean, Barbie's doing buku bucks, you know, highest grossing film from a, a woman director. It, it was a new film. It, it's a film that shouldn't, shouldn't have worked with the current box office, you know, formula or, or what people think, you know, right now it's superhero movies. It's all big budget superhero movie. You throw it in there and people are going to go see it. But what we're seeing recently is that's not the case. You know, we like the flash, but it, it bombed at the box office. And I, not really that surprised. Um, I'm getting tired of superhero movies myself. So I, I think yeah. it's there. And I, th I would hope that executives and, you know, the powers that be 
you know, get some courage again, man. Start throwing some artsy shit up in there and start wowing people. Give people a reason to like, hey, I can't watch this on Netflix. I can't watch this on, you know, Hulu. This is a weird, quirky, crazy movie that I'm going to go see in the cinema and I can only see it there and it's going to be exciting. It's going to be a new, you know, like uh, last month I saw Talk to Me, the horror movie. And, you know, we'll have to do an episode on that or speak about it at length. But that's a movie that, as with all horror, in my opinion, but that's a movie I loved seeing in the theater. I was freaked out, the atmosphere it created. And I think financially it's doing pretty well. And, you know, that that captures the magic of cinema for me. So I'll stop ranting and raving, but <laughs> no, no. I, I don't think streamers or streaming services are. I think if anything, they are filtering out the shit ideas on the stream platform so that the really good ones make it to the box office. But I think, you know, superhero flicks, big budget blockbusters are kind of holding down some some of the films that could be in there with them running. Well, I guess uh, it'll lead to that. I guess I would ask, uh, you know, with the rise of the superhero films, especially in the last uh, 15 years, do you think that, and let me specify, not not where we are today, where superhero films are kind of on a decline, but just going over the last 15 years, do you think that the, the rise of the superhero film helped diversify the types of stories that were being told in cinema? Or do you think that they had the opposite effect and have kind of stifled the originality and the variety of films that we've seen in theaters? I think that the rise of superhero films have stifled original films from long runs at the box office. I think that's why so many good stories are showing up in television series now. You know, you're and and kind of in a good way because a, a story that is so tantalizing or interesting that would have only existed in a two and a half hour runtime, you know, at best, if you really want that length and exploration now is being explored in 10 hours in a, a season and it can benefit from, you know, a TV production schedule, which means you're usually getting content a lot faster than you would if you were waiting for entries in a film series. So, you know, I, I think it just shifted where, like what forms these stories are being told. Um, not that it's a bad thing or a good thing, but like I said, you know, in the previous question, cinema and the magic of cinema being in a theater in the dark where you have to focus on the screen, you can't whip your phone out, get distracted with a huge, you know, sound system, big screen, all that. It, it's a different experience by far, you know, it's like riding your bicycle is watching stuff at home. Even if you have a good sound system. And riding a motorcycle is like, you know, watching the movie in a cinema and in, in, in the theaters. So, you know, that that to me is the defining factor or the distinguishing factor between the two. It's just that right now, I think what appears to thrive and be successful in the theater has executives, you know, saying no, no, no to some of these other stories. So they go to the streamers, the, you know, Amazon. Disney, Hulu, they're at war with each other. So they're willing to take a risk on some of these projects that aren't appearing in the box office, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's a good, that's a good point. And I, I guess, I mean, it has been a huge rise of the superhero film. 
you know, you got the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You have uh, the DC Expanded Universe, um, and then and on the side, we have a lot of offshoots of just superhero content in general, right? The standalone Batman movie. I guess more specifically, what do you what do you think about the actual stories being told in superhero films? Do you think do you think any of those have led to different types of movies outside of the superhero genre? Or do you think it's just like a small box of possible directions you can take a superhero? And that has kind of warped the creativity as a culture, if that makes sense. Like, do you think the exposure to that many superhero stories has kind of boxed ourselves in as a society for what we expect a hero to be, superhero or not? Yeah, I mean, hmm. I think it I think it has. I, I think when you are blasted in the face, eyes, ears, you know, with 20, 30 films of the MCU and 10 of DC and all this, you start it starts to define the narrative of a superhero film or what superhero stories should be. Not that superhero stories can't be other stories or follow a different template or formula. I, I think though that the average moviegoer or the studio execs, whatever are, they've been conditioned over, you know, from when did Iron Man come out? 2008, 2007, whatever that was. Yeah. It's almost 20 years of conditioning, you know, on what a superhero film is. And I think you could tell some interesting stories in each of these superhero films, but I think what's been happening lately is that it's the same kind of tired story over and over again. And that's why the box office returns are starting to diminish. You know, these projects are starting to flop. I think it, you know, it's superhero, someone who has power beyond, you know, all belief uh, that it opens up all kinds of moral dilemmas and interesting things. And most of the stories we get is someone's called to, you know, you know, a higher duty. They struggle personally on whether they can live up to some ideals of society. And then ultimately, you know, that maybe they're reluctant. They take on, you know, take up the mantle, fight a foe. And then each of these villains is dispensed, you know, uh, or disposed of within a film that I think is getting, old i think that's tired you know tired material at least for me i mean obviously it's just my opinion and i may be out of touch but i think that if you explored i mean all of us can sit here and ask ourselves what would we do if we had superman's power i'm sure it wouldn't all be great things i'm sure people would be challenged and you know if you're i mean if you're poor maybe you'd go and grab money and, you know, rob a bank or like do things to set yourself up or, you know, impose your will. I mean, think about how many dictators have appeared. I mean, all of human history, nearly monarchies, dictators, and none of these superhero films explore what happens when the wrong person gets it. And and maybe they do, you know, to an extent, but not fully fleshed out, not in a way that I think really explores what it means to be tempted by power and things of that nature. So, I mean, I think there are stories like that that exist that are out there or even stories where like, you know, the amazing Spider-Man thing too, um, he doesn't save, you know, Gwen, she dies. So things like that where you're trying to do your best, but 
you're not a pro, especially if you got powers recently, maybe there's collateral damage. You end up killing a lot of people you love or, you know, you mess up big time and you are kind of like Hancock or something. Yeah, so I think there's a lot that could be explored, but it doesn't fit into the Disney manufactured, you know, machine or even what people think of as superhero films. Yeah, no, that's a good point. We've seen more of that in television, right? I guess the boys would be a great example of people that are undeserving of powers, getting powers. Yeah, and I I think that's (laughs) kind of exactly what I'm saying, whereas, you know, in the box office, Disney – you know, Marvel is reigning supreme. So these stories that it's stifling the ability to tell these stories in that venue, but they're now, they exist on Amazon. They exist on the streaming platform. So is, are the streamers impacting movies or is it the executives and the studios that believe in a formula so much that they've pushed all other stories out? So naturally other forms, venues are taking them up. I think it's more the, you know, the executive kind of approach to movie making at the big studios because these yeah. stories want to be told. I mean, if I'm talking about it, I'm not a writer in Hollywood. I'm sure hundreds, if not thousands of writers are already exploring these things. So they just can't get that project greenlit for a theatrical run. They got to take it to a graphic novel or directly to a streamer and then it gets adapted, you know, whatever it may be. No, that's a that, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a chicken and egg situation, right? Like, did these did the executives follow the money from the, the audience, or did the audience follow where the money was pumped into for the film? There just happened to be a quality product, and maybe there were some mixed signals being sent, or maybe this is something the audience has really wanted. I know there was a a long time where the idea of a cinematic universe was really exciting to me. Now it's not so much. I mean, just a, a quick look at the cinematic universe history, right? Going back to the beginning of film, up until the DC expa- or the Marvel expanding universe, there were seventeen expanding universes ever made. Since two thousand seven, there's been seventeen by themselves. So the last you know sixteen years has matched entire film history before that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's it. You know, some formula that has worked for Marvel is now dominating how studios plan and prepare and green light projects. And I, I agree. Yeah. There was, I remember the idea of like, wait, what this movie about another character will tie into another movie and they're not direct sequels. Like, Oh my gosh, that's unheard <laughs> yeah. of. Like so exciting. excited. <laughs> and then they, yeah. you know, universal announced their monster universe or whatever. And it was like, geez, oh. save me. <laughs> that was so and Tom bad. Cruise bombed, you know, like, Come on, you know, get, make it make sense. Make it, don't go for the easy, easy, you know, low hanging fruit. Like try, hire people who care, who it makes sense to tell these stories in a shared universe. There's some tapestry, fine woven tapestry, bigger picture that this feeds into. Because if you don't, like The Mummy um, with Tom Cruise, audiences aren't going to show up and they're not going to support you. They, they're not going to do it. So I don't know, man. I think it's an industry that's risk averse. And I guess I understand if average blockbuster, you know, is $200 million budget, you have to be. But what about shared universes that are small scale, you know, like horror, like the Conjuring universe, you know, 
those are that's a cinematic universe. Yeah, and exactly. They're low budget. They make fat amounts of money, and it's great. It's a great time to to go sit in the theater and watch those movies. Why can't you do that with like some gritty true crime cop films or something where you know you have almost like true detective but film style, you know, actual installments, and they're tied together in some really cool and interesting way. No, that, that's a good point. Or heist movies, it, man. Maybe you got a bunch of like heist movies <laughs> that tie together or something. Like there's so many opportunities to do a cinematic so, universe, not on the scale of Marvel. That, that That's a good point. So I know in India, they, they've been doing a lot of their own uh, expanded universes, right? So they have one universe called, I think it's called the Hit Universe. And that is a series of heist films. So is it really? Yeah, I haven't, my I haven't India seen film knowledge <laughs> is slacking big time. No, mine is shout too. out been... to India and you know Bollywood and all that, but yeah, <laughs> I need to step up my game for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say about twenty five percent of these expanded universes that I've been reading about are have been, come out of India, and there a lot of them are cop universes, spy universes, heist movie universes. So they're not See, superhero. The, this is what I'm saying, man. Exactly. See, I'm not in, in, in the industry. And if I'm thinking it, other people's ha- other people have for sure. So that, that right there is reassuring. I didn't know that that is awesome. We should be doing that here in the States, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had a perfect jumping off, off opportunity with like the Ocean series, you know, instead of just making Ocean's 12 or 13. Yep. You know, follow, there's so many great characters in that that could have followed those people for their standalone films. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, tying some like common thread of, you know, how some old crew lead is like behind the scenes on some big job. And you, I mean, kind of like, you know, M night Shyamalan did with, um, Oh gosh, uh, split, you know, you don't, the beauty of that movie is you don't know it's connected to any other bigger universe until the very end. And that's why it was so impactful when you realized. If you knew from the start, you'd, it would have changed your whole like viewing experience. And I think that that expanded universe has the the best name for an expanded universe yet. That's the What's East the Rail official one, name. <laughs> the East Rail One Seven Seven trilogy. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's legit. You know, it's, uh, I think, you know, before we go on to the next question, I just think the funniest expanded universe or cinematic universe is Sony Spider-Man universe, which uh, started in 2018 with Venom, and they have a full film slate going through 2024, and not one of those films is Spider-Man. So <laughs> he has yet to appear in his own cinematic universe. <laughs> that is interesting. I mean, I do they technically count his entries in the Marvel, the MCU? They, they, at least not on the Wikipedia page, at least that I'm reading. I could be wrong. Because I know there was that nod at the end of, um, oh gosh, which one was it? Venom 2, right? To to, uh, the MCU's homecoming. Yeah, then Venom crossed over to the MCU uh, at the end of uh, No Way Home. But then got kicked back, and it didn't. Nothing really came of it, right? <laughs> yeah. So they aren't actually in the same universe. It was like a parallel 
Yeah. So or the multiverse. So I guess, yeah, that Spider-Man technically isn't their Spider-Man, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause he got, he's in the wrong universe. <laughs> so what's the next question? What do you got? <laughs> well, I want to move away from the superhero stuff a little bit. So let, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's move to something that's a little bit more relevant with, uh, the actor strike, the screen actor skills strike. So with advancements in technology like deep fakes and CGI, at what point does an actor's performance stop being theirs? Mm, that's a good one. Whew. I don't know. I don't know that I have a, a firm answer on this because I think I'm uneducated in, in a lot of respects. I mean, I can see an argument being made of like at what point, like, you know, an actor who's in a film, if there's a heavily CGI'd, shot of them doing something is that really their performance i'd argue no you know like when tom holland is in the uh spider-man suit and it's a full cgi sequence of spider-man swinging through the city is that really his performance no i don't think so i think his performance is when he is directly bringing emotion to the role you know in a in a scene I mean, he doesn't have to have his mask off, but, you know, his dialogue his you know, he's actually doing the work. He could take ownership of that performance. I think when you are no longer doing the work and someone is emulating your voice or restructuring, you know, deep faking your face, you don't have ownership over that anymore. And if you don't, then yeah, I think you have problems there, you know? Yeah. So I think you, I guess, it exists currently, but with this technology, it will further diminish the role of an actor. I, I agree. So let me let me give you a, a thought experiment, right? Let's take Tom Holland, right? And let's say that Tom Holland acts out his role of as Peter Parker, right? No CGI, but at the end of the at the end of the filming, the producers decide that they really want a Nicolas Cage in there, and they deep fake Nicolas Cage's face. And his voice on the Tom Holland's performance. How responsible is Tom Holland for that role at that point? I don't think, I mean, I think he's responsible, obviously, for the physical work he put in that film. So you're not seeing Nicolas Cage move his body or his face for that matter. That is work that was being done by Tom Holland. But... What's coming across to the audience is not Tom Holland and his work. It's the distraction of Nicolas Cage, you know, as Spider-Man or whoever. He replaced Nicolas Cage with, you know, some young up-and-coming actor. People will attribute the performance to that person, but they did no work at all, right? So yeah, technically, I think it's still, the you know, Tom Holland's responsibility, but his association with that obviously is greatly diminished. You know, this is kind of like David Prowse and Darth Vader, right? He was very upset about being dubbed over by James yeah. Earl Jones in the suit. But James Earl Jones is not Darth Vader. His voice is. I mean, the voice and the delivery of these lines is, you know, from him. And, and you associate him with Darth Vader. But the embodiment, the movements and everything is David. And most people don't give him any credit. They say James Earl Jones, you know, that, that's Darth Vader. So I think that's the same thing. You People would say, oh, Nicolas Cage, he signed off. He allowed them to do whatever. But yeah, it's a performance by Nicolas Cage. 
although the body double, the person who's in the suit, who's doing the hard work, most of the work in terms of the physical presence on screen is Tom Holland. So it's shared, so, you know, it's shared at that point. So I guess how would we rate Andy Serkis as Caesar? Excellent. Mastercraft performance. <laughs> Do you think that any of his performance is diminished by being CGI and the work of the, you know, of the artists that are illustrating him as a, you know, as an ape diminishes his role? No, I don't, because I, I think the audience knows whether they know it or not, or they come to learn about it after the fact, the whole performance is attributed to Andy Circus. No one's confusing, you know, Gollum for a real actor or Caesar, an ape, as being hired, you know, to, to do <laughs> yeah. the work. That'd be very so think, <laughs> Yeah, you know, so I think you can still say, damn, yeah, Andy Circus, he killed that. Like, he's there. He's the man in the mocap. He's the man behind the mask. And he is doing everything to sell this role. And I'd say the same thing about Tom Holland as Spider-Man. But when you throw another actor that people know, or even another person, human face, whatever, it makes it much easier to take away from that person's performance and attribute it to that other person. Okay. So I, I guess a little side shoot from there. Do you think Andy Serkis should have been nominated for an Oscar? Absolutely. For, for which, uh, which role specifically? Do you think it should be Golem, or do you think that was too soon, or do you think definitely one of the Planet of the Apes? Well, Gollum, I don't think – I mean, Gollum's a very important character. You know me. I'm drinking the Eye of Sauron right now. So <laughs> yeah. you know, I love Lord of the Rings. and I don't – I mean, maybe it's too soon. You know, it. he wasn't really a made man at that point. Um, but, I mean, there's some goddamn fellowship, you know. You got nine people right there. So Gollum, it's hard for me to sit there and go, yeah, he should have been nominated for that role and there's so many other performances. But – I think, you know, everyone in the categories from Lord of the Rings that year, if that was the case at the Academy. But um, no, I think I think for Planet of the Apes, he should have for sure, he, 100%. Well, just because you don't see an actor's face, you know, and on screen doesn't mean they're not worthy of the Oscar. He should have been nominated for lead and um, lead actor, and he should have got it, you know. If we're war or Don, I mean, I, I can't remember what movies were uh, or what actors were nominated those years. If you can pull that up quickly or have it handy, sure. But yeah, man, he that that those movies, the Planet of the Apes, the new ones, Rise, Dawn, War, those movies are they make up one of my favorite trilogies of all time. I'd put that in top three trilogies of all time. I put Lord of the Rings number one, Star Wars number two, Apes number three. And anyone who disagrees, I'll argue with you every day of the week. The, <laughs> the Apes you know, trilogy, what they yeah, well, did is they – Go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt your rant. They're my favorites. No, I, I was just going to say my rant <laughs> is, is this. They, those apes were more human than the humans in those films. And in order to sell that to me – those mocap performances had to be top tier. They had to be better than human performances in order to make me empathize with a non-human in the story more than humans. And for that, and that reason alone, you should have been nominated. Yeah, well, you're going to be very disappointed when you realize who was nominated for Best Actor that year. Jeez. 
So let, let me lead off the uh, <laughs> the finalists. You have uh, Eddie Remain from The Theory of Everything, Bradley Cooper uh, for American weak, Sniper, weak, weak performance. Steve Carell for Foxcatcher, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Imitation Game, and Michael Keaton for Birdman. Okay, Keaton was great. Um, Benedict was he was good, uh, but Circus was better than all of them. Come on, you <laughs> tell me that. So, what year was that, Don? Or uh, this would be 2015 Oscars. So, what? When did Don come out and, and War? So, I, I think they came out 2014, right? Don and the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Okay. Don. I mean, he killed it in Don for sure, but. I would more more so argue that War was a stronger performance, even though the story overall I didn't enjoy as much as Don. The story was still good. I mean, it's a redemption story. It's a, a man, an ape, who loses everything and <laughs> goes on the vengeance, the war path, loses his soul by doing it, and then is redeemed by the end. He goes from the best, perfect leader he can be to being sloppy and making you know, silly mistakes on the pursuit of vengeance is a story that's been told many, many times before, but it's an excellent story. So to me, I think as a character story, it it serves better for Caesar in war than Don, but yeah. And uh, so, I mean, in 2018, that's uh, for war. His competition was Gary Oldman for darkest hour. Oh man, I'm always going to mess up names on this podcast. Is it Daniel Kaluuya? Is that you say it? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Forget out. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, Chalamet for <laughs> for Call Me by Your Name. Daniel Day Lewis for Phantom Thread, and Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel. Yeah, I mean Gary Oldman won, right? I, yeah, it's hard to say that Andy Serkis did better than Gary Oldman. Maybe, but the whole point is Andy Serkis should have been nominated. You know what? Uh, what's interesting about that is, and I, I, re- I really feel like the 2018 highlights a better disparity between motion capture and acting because Gary Oldman winning for The Darkest Hour, in my opinion, was largely attributed to the prosthetics and work in that film. Yeah, I was just about to say that's live action mo- mocap, if you will. <laughs> right. Now he's putting on a fat suit. He's going to work, doing the same performance. Andy Serkis just has a mocap suit on. Gary Oldman has the fat suit. Andy Serkis has the mocap. They're both doing the same thing. Yeah. I think you could have uh, replaced Chalamet with uh, Andy Serkis. 1,000% with Andy Serkis. 1,000%. I'm never never impressed with his performances. No, I mean, Dune's all right. He did all right in Dune. Willy Wonka. Oh, man. He's present. He's present in Dune. I'm not impressed with his performance in Dune. He doesn't hold Dune together. And that, I think that's no. the thing, right? Is that that movie's held together by Denis, not Chalamet. So I guess before we get too deep into the Oscars questions, I have a, I have a question about the Oscars. This is a perfect opportunity to lead into it. So do award ceremonies like the Oscars truly honor the best in film or have they become more about pop- politics and popularity? I mean, as with anything, it's all politics. You never remove anything. I mean, unless you get a bunch of engineers and actuaries and accountants together in a room and they crunch out formulas to award based on budget, box office revenue, average salary, you know, all that for best film. 
you know, best film is subjective. And because it's subjective, it's open to all the political theater that comes with it. It's like yeah. running for office. It's the best person doesn't win. It's the most charismatic or the most whatever at that time in history. It, it's not an objective best. It's a subjective based on the pulse of pop culture or the media or society. And remember, I mean, these people or these award shows are voted on by the members of the Academy. And these are human beings who are subject to influences of the moment, you know, whatever narratives are coming out of the campaigns of the award season. What about a damn good movie that has no budget or no resources to go on the campaign trail? The fact that they even call it an Oscars campaign, I think is telling enough that this is all, it's all politics. You're campaigning. You're trying to win over the masses who are voting for your movie or your actress or whatever. And then those people are in the industry you work in. So, you know, they may 30% of them be connected to the person who's being nominated and, you know, Oh yeah, I voted for you. I'm glad you got it. Oh, you put me in a role or, Oh, we're working together on this project. It's all, it's a circle jerk. You know, what's interesting is that if you look at the last four best picture winners, not one film has had a budget over 25 million. What are the last four? So last year was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Nice. Then 2021 was Coda. 2020 was Nomadland nice. Land or Nomadland. And then 2019 was Parasite. Nice. Nomadland is the only one I think I didn't really connect with out of those four. Actually, if you go back, I'm going back even further. I stopped too soon. So there hasn't been a film with a budget over $25 million since... What year? Give me a second. Argo in 2012. Well, I'd make this argument. You know, you're, this is a very good question. And I mean, you've ranted and raved about this in so many different forms, but not so directly. Not, not like this, I don't think. But I'd argue this, and maybe this is, I'm an optimist. I consider myself an optimist, but I'm, I think, very cynical with pop culture lately. I think I'm you know, the death of pop culture, I'm always screaming and, you know, <laughs> yeah. bitching and moaning. But uh, like Smeagol from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I think that Best Picture is a reflection of what the industry wishes it was and what it what the industry – like, think about, think about it like this. If you have 1,400 – how many people are in the voting body of the Academy? 1,400 oh. or something? Yeah. I don't know. It's, you have a, a mass of people, right? And uh, 10, they're 000. all... What's that? 10,000. 10,000, so even more. You have this group of people who are voting on something that is basically... Best Picture is a reflection of Hollywood in that year. You know, current Hollywood. I would argue that the Best Picture is projection of what Hollywood stands for, what movies are being made, what is the best picture, how have we won the hearts and minds of the people? Oh, it's, you know, CODA. Oh, it's uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. You know, predominantly Asian film, you know, lead, uh, you know, deaf lead actor. You know, not that those are bad things, but I think the Academy tries to aspire or like choose the best picture. The people vote because that's their moral high horse. That's their 
I want to vote for something that's a reflection of what, you know, we want the world to think we do here. And then all of the other awards, lead actor and actress and shit. I mean, you still got some of that in there, the politics and, you know, the representation kind of things. You know, Oscar's so white a couple of years ago. Now the voting members, I think, are pressured to try to include, you know, more people in their nominations. And, you know, as they should be. But I don't – we're getting to the politics now, right? All these politics, yeah. I think, bleed into it. And they aren't picking films for best picture that are a hundred million dollars or 150 that, you know, everyone complains when I talk to like younger people, I'm like, Hey, this one best picture. They're like, I didn't see that goddamn movie. I don't care. That's not <laughs> the best pictures aren't representative of the average movie goer and what they like. I think they represent what Hollywood wishes they were like. Hollywood put, puts forward a best picture that they, they wish they were making movies like that. Like that was the normal movie they made, but they're not. They're making movies that are, you know, 15 white superheroes for every one woman or, you know, whatever the hell it may be, whatever yeah. issue that has led to all of these, they've gotten heat. The Academy's gotten heat for the past five to, you know, 10 years for being, blinded you know or blind to like other performances really good movies really good roles and i think now the voting members are starting to say oh we we want to start focusing on those films and rightly so do parasite amazing film nakoda was great everything everywhere all at once was awesome nomadland was dog shit i i don't if you liked it and you're listening i'm sorry <laughs> i did not vibe my parents, with that. My parents like that one <laughs> Francis is great too, but I was like, what the hell? What's the point of this film? It's a big waste of time. That's the best picture of the year. So there politics, I mean, it's all it's all politics. And you know, you have actors or actresses that win in a given year, and you're like, dude, what the hell? You're only winning because quote unquote, it's your time, not because your performance <laughs> was the best. It's because yeah, five years ago they snubbed you, so they gave it to some other person because it was their time, and now they're trying to make amends by you. <laughs> and that's what these people are thinking when they're voting. They're not voting on some strict criteria of, you know, objective criteria. They're sitting, damn, Leo, this is the sixth time he's been up. Fuck. All right, Revenant. It's about time. <laughs> you got a majority of these 10,000. <laughs> and he got it. The Revenant was not his role in the Revenant was not his best role. And it wasn't the best role that year. No, no. And I, I agree. And, I guess, I guess um, it's a it's a it's an interesting, interesting question when you look at like what the academy actually starts to represent and what they what they award. It it does seem to be very much uh, it's either a political message, whether you agree with it or not, and it's a turn based system, right? Yeah, turn based and political, and it's a lot of patting yourself on the on your back, the academy. They pat themselves. It's a circle jerk, man. They pat themselves on the back. That was uh, Brendan Fraser, right? For for his role in Whale. Seemed very much like a, hey, we fucked up by not believing your story earlier. Yeah. Let's give you an you're blacklisted pretty much. And here's an Oscar. We're sorry. Boom, you're back, baby. <laughs> Whale was good. He wasn't the best actor that year. Get real. No, it's another situation where he had a live action. I wanted him to win because the- – <laughs> 
I believed in, you know, it was an emotional story that appealed to me. And I was able to put discard the objective reasoning <laughs> that I had seen better performances that year because it, it, it was a feel-good story. But at the end of the day, it was bullshit. It was a bullshit win. I love him. I'm glad he has an Oscar, but it's a bullshit win. All right. So, so let's uh, let's stay on the same tune of like what on the social social messaging of films because I think we both agree that a great film usually does have something to say about society, right? Absolutely, one thousand percent. So, it, when considering something a film, you know, subjective as this question may be, to be one of the greatest of all time, is it necessary to have a moral or social message, or can a film be one of the greatest of all time when it's made for just pure entertainment? No, you don't need a social or moral message to have a film that's the greatest of all time. I think you need to have a story that moves people and moves them so profoundly that they look inward and change something about their day-to-day life. That is a movie that I think is the greatest of all time. That's something that sits there. You connect with it so deeply that now you're going home and it's sitting with you. It's informing your decision-making or what you choose to study or learn about or focus your time on. Pure entertainment. I mean, and, and you can have a movie that purely entertains you and maybe it entertains you so much that you're, you know, motivated in that way afterwards. But I don't think you need to have some story about, you know, racism is bad or like everyone should have a voice for that to be the greatest film of all time. Those are important stories because at the end of the day, the reason we tell stories is to pass on critical information about society that is useful for all of us. That's why we connect with it. Because we see these stories in our everyday lives. They help shape how we interact with people, who we are, and all that. But I don't think it's, you know, a requirement. All right. And uh, I guess let's get to a little bit more of a provocative question, which is, so, you know, society is continuously evolving, and older films often get viewed through a different lens, a lens of today's time. And as that happens, should... Older films with problematic elements be edited or given context, or should they be left untouched as products of their time? Hell no, they should not be edited or censored. They should be left. They're products of their time. How are you supposed to sit here? Old films should be a cautionary tell for you or the viewer, if you're offended, to remember how quickly things can go back to that, how quickly things were, you know, package manufactured into entertainment for you to buy and accept at face value. If you don't understand that that happened before, it's like banning, you know, information about the Nazis because you're afraid of it happening again. I mean, I get it. Germany has their laws, but that should be taught. It should be shown because if you become unfamiliar with how quickly very shitty ideas propagate and spread through society and are accepted, it's bound to happen again. I think you should be able to watch an old film and be like, holy shit, you know, that main actor was a womanizer. Like, glad we don't live in that time. Maybe it gives you appreciation for where you're at now. You, you know, you're married or you, you are a woman or whatever. And you're glad that you have, you know, a much bigger role in society. You're able to, you know, speak your mind. You see some of these old classic films and the women are relegated to just, you know, their appearance. They have no voice in the film. 
should that be banned because that's not right? No, that should be shown and people should have to sit there and reflect on what that means. Why, why, why did that exist in the past? Well, it existed because of so many different reasons, right? And what are those reasons? Well, now you're thinking about it. It prompts that discussion. If you think about it and you digest it, you can prevent it from happening again. Yeah, it's such an important historical document to see where we were and what we didn't like, or you know, even possibly to see what we did like. Well, the thing is, yeah. like, should you tear up the Constitution or you know the Declaration because it mentions men and not women? No, you should sit there and go, "Damn, that was a time when you know white men with land owned property," and let's not go back to that. You know. Why was that wrong? Yeah. It gets you to sit there and think about, you know, that that's how it started. And you had to start somewhere, of course. But if you are no. blind to that or you don't preserve those things through movies or whatever, I think you're doomed to repeat your mistakes. Now, it's one thing to sit down and watch a movie and say, I enjoy it because the main character is a womanizer. It's another to sit there and go, <laughs> damn, this is a reflection of society at that time. It's still an interesting and good story. But there are a lot of social, you know, issues that are present in this film, and it's a good reminder of how far we've come. It, it is nice to see how far we've come, isn't it? You, you look back at the nineteen sixties films; just, you don't have to go any further than look at the, the way James Bond has evolved. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one, James Bond. Yeah, I mean, just now James Bond has female characters that actually move the plot along instead of just being eye candy. Yeah, look at. Uh, Anna de Armas and uh, No Time to Die. You know, she wasn't there to sleep with him. She was there as another agent to help him get out of a bind. Yeah, you know, strong, strong woman character, good looking, like James Bond's good looking. You know, James Bond isn't there just to sleep with a bunch of women and be used by women. He's, you know, he's the main character. He's doing something. But I think that's what you mean is you're introducing women who can be good looking like him and and be their own powerful capable, smart, you know, beautiful, whoever person, and they don't have to just be there as, you know, arm candy or, you know, some romantic interest to the main lead. Yeah. And so this, this, uh, that's a really well said. And, uh, so I, I asked that question as kind of a primer for the second question, which is, I think we could all agree that there's a lot of films in the past that have problems, but this question more has to do with, filmmakers of today who've had problems in their personal life, maybe recent or in the far past, some very significant and horrific problems. You look no further than Roman Polanski and some of the evil things he's been attached to. So should a filmmaker's personal controversies and misdeeds affect how we perceive and support their work? No, unless the personal controversies are tied to the messaging of the film, because then you know the artist you know, is has is imparting their own personal preferences or issues into the the artwork itself, right? I mean, I think if you're a cannibal and you've been uh, tried and you're in prison for being a cannibal, murderer, serial, whatever, but you're a fabulous artist, but you know the work that people appreciated was about some grotesque, horrible pieces of you know cannibalism or whatever. Say the Van Gogh of cannibalism and art form. I think that, <laughs> you know, this is a crazy example, but I think it's a, a good one because now you're saying, well, shit, he's not drawing from a place of like 
I don't know, wild inspiration. He's drawing from like what he knows. And we all agree that that's terrible. Cannibalism is a terrible thing. That impacts the finished art that you're now looking at. I think if you are someone who's, you know, you got a DUI, you killed a whole family driving drunk, that's terrible. But if you made a movie about why it matters to be a good person and it connects with audiences and it makes people sit there and try to be a better person, why should that message be diluted or destroyed because the actual person, the artist is an asshole? You know, I don't think it should. Now, if the artist made a movie about drunk drivers killing a bunch of people, then it's kind of like, nah, this is in poor taste, you know? It's easier yeah. to divorce yourself from that. So I, the, the answer I'd give is it depends. Um, and then there's the other thing too, is that if that person is doing some terrible things, but they've made a really good piece of art, you going there, some people would argue, you know, going to support their art is supporting them financially. And you're enabling them to do whatever the hell it is that they're doing, you know, that's wrong or that people don't like. And I see that argument. I understand that argument. But I don't think as an audience member, the burden lies on you. I think that lies on the people who helped finance and create the project. It's their responsibility to pull it or take a stand or do whatever. That's a good point. I'm not I'm not sure how you, you know, how familiar. Because I have an iPhone, do I support slave labor, child labor in China or anything like that? No, I don't. But if I had to vote <laughs> my principles, I wouldn't be able to live in modern society at all. That's true. So you I guess strip, uh, mining that is, strip mining required to build electric vehicles, to put together all of modern electronics that we use for day-to-day -day work in an office environment. How many people die from strip mining and have to suffer through poor conditions? Yes, that's a good point. All society would grind to a halt if we all behaved in that way. So it's nuanced. It's, I think it's easy for people who aren't personally impacted or don't give a shit either way to easily remove themselves and say, Hey, I changed my profile picture on social media or I'm not going to buy, you know, a Tesla or whatever it may be, but they're not personally invested, you know, in the product or whatever the issue may be. So I don't know. I mean, if it was some artist who did something very terrible, I probably wouldn't want to support their work, but if their work transcended them and was important for social commentary purposes or, even, you know, moving the needle conversation-wise on an important issue, you know, I could kind of move forward and, and be okay with that. I could make peace with that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I, I'm kind of going back to your point about the making the film about the subject of, like, cannibalism if you're a cannibal. And it kind of brings me to Woody Allen and, you know, all, the, all of what we heard about him and his adopted child – and his, uh, I believe, his stepdaughter, right? Those stories. Yeah, Woody Allen's a creep. Yeah, and uh, it just it reminds me of um, a film I first saw at actually a college film class, in Manhattan. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yeah, same class. I mean, I took it a year after you, but yeah. Yeah, you remember you remember watching Manhattan there, and where? <laughs> yeah, shout <laughs> out uh, Juchol Kim. <laughs> yeah, one of my and favorite Arizona State University. <laughs> yeah, so remember. Um, the, the, the content of that film, that's a, that's about a guy who is fighting his demons about being in a relationship with an underage woman. And 
that looks horrible in the context of what we know or have heard about him in recent times. But uh, it, it makes it hard to, you know, it's hard for me to really put into words how I feel about the whole situation because everything I read was so horrible and everything I saw in the documentary was so horrible. But, you know, Midnight in Paris is still one of my favorite movies. It's hard for me to kind of come to terms with liking that movie and then also being grossed out by the person that Woody Allen is. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very tough and I don't know what the right answer is because I don't go back and watch Manhattan anymore. I don't no. do that. Don't, <laughs> that. Yeah, that's that would be like the cannibal you know, making the painting yeah, of cannibal. I don't I don't watch that and I don't watch a lot of Woody Allen's work anymore because I think he's a fool. You know, I don't agree with him. But you know, I did watch Midnight in Paris and I, I do I do like Midnight in Paris. I like Vicky Cristina Barcelona a lot. Yeah, that's Bart- a great movie. You know, um, Scarlett Johansson. Uh, what's her name? Rebecca Black, is it? Um, great movie, you know? And it's these movies are so good that I'm not even thinking about Woody Allen's ass, you know, when I'm watching them. <laughs> but it is hard. It's hard to sit here and be like, damn, when I watch it, is he getting, a, you know, some cut of the streaming profit or whatever? Because if he is, that's a bummer. And that's kind of what I was saying about the studios, like, you know, or the, the, the people who own the rights to allow the, these pieces of art to be exhibited. And I don't know. I, they're still allowing him to make movies. They're still doing it. They're still, I mean, Owen Wilson is that he a piece of shit. Cause he was in the film, you know, is Scarlett Johansson and Javier Bardem because they did a movie with him. Should I never watch any of their films again? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I have, I haven't stopped watching their movies. I'll continue. I love Javier Bardem. Scarlett Johansson, you know, Owen Wilson, I'll watch all their movies, but I don't like Woody Allen. So it's tough. I know exactly what you mean. It, it's tough. Um, fuck Woody Allen, though. <laughs> That's what I got to say. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't want anyone thinking I'm uh, supporting anything you had to do there. <laughs> no, do not condone any of that behavior. <laughs> so I kind of I wanted to kind of shift far away from this topic and burn it with gasoline. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting topic before you shift because there is, you know, the whole free speech kind of argument too that, you know, you, people have, they have their free speech. They have their ability to go and make their art and put it out there. It's hard as with any policy issue or any public social commentary issue, it's not black and white. It's nuanced. It's very gray. And sometimes people have an easier, I think, easier go at it than I do. And even you, I mean, based on our discussion, some people can just draw the line in the sand and say, you know, forget them. I'm not supporting whoever that may be, but that, it, I don't know. I think, you and I, I think you and I suffer from seeing the gray line pretty heavily where it's hard to draw lines. It's hard to find lines often in life. Very hard. You know, it's, that should be a quote you put on a shirt for the study pipe and start selling it. <laughs> Right. Study pipe merch. We don't have a great line when it comes to selling merch. Yeah, it's hard to draw lines in life. Yeah. It is. It is hard. It's uh it's like the more you learn about something, it's the deeper the weeds and it's like what is what is uh what's right and wrong really, you know, the more you think about it. These concepts just seem to be like sand, they kind of slip through the fingers. Yeah, well, I mean, if people really want to bake their noodle, they could go read Nietzsche 
beyond good and evil. <laughs> then you can really yeah, see right. about where you draw <laughs> lines. Yeah. That uh That should be a future episode. That yeah, I would be one hundred percent I'd be be very interested. Uh so the next oh, question. Man. Gasoline, we're burning it, we're dousing it. Forget <laughs> Woody Allen and all this. Interesting. And you know, I think even all these questions we've I've been answering, we've been talking about, my answer is subject to change. I think the you know, I I like to think I'm an open minded person and you know, my view on superhero movies or streaming and you know, the role of all these things change over time. I mean I, you know me, I've had directors I really like, and now lately uh, all I do is bitch and moan about them. And I think, you know, maybe I'll go back the other way in a couple of years and be like, I really like him again. And I think that's what makes life interesting, you know, is how you, at least for me, change your opinions and views on things. So, yeah, the, the ebbs and flows of opinions. Yeah. And uh, so with that, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up a question. So you've known for a long time that I've been very dissatisfied with the modern film critic world. And I know you have been too. And uh, you and I bitch and moan about Rotten Tomato scores and just overall how critics approach films in general. So with that being said, should film critics have formal training in film studies or a background in film production? Or is there a role simply to reflect the tastes and opinions of the general public? No, man. I don't think you should have any formal training at all. I think anyone can be a critic. My mother's a critic of me, you know? (laughs) What formal (laughs) training does she have in childcare (laughs) or raising, you know, a person? (laughs) Anyone can be a critic. I think, you know, when I go to McDonald's and they mess up the presentation of my burger, I'm one of the best burger critics you can find. (laughs) Like, oh, man. Yeah, you, you I mean, actually. Tarantino, you, <laughs> you, have, you have people who've gone through, you know, you have actors who have no formal training at all. Look at Johnny Depp, you know, and he wanted to be a musician. He became an actor. I don't, I don't think you need formal training to be a critic. I think if you have formal training, if you are doing, you know, if you're doing a lot of additional work to learn and take in new information, it allows your criticism to be more valuable, effective. You know, my, like I said, my mom could critique how I do X, Y, and Z. If she was taking in more information, she had more training on whatever topic it may be. Her criticism may be more useful for me to change my behavior or do something differently. So I think, you know, if you're a film critic, I don't necessarily think you need to go to film school and have those trainings, but you should watch a lot of film probably. You should be aware of how many different ways you can tell, you know, a story, an archetype and these things, because it'll allow you to draw on a lot, you know, a big well. You're drawing from a big well of knowledge and experience to sit here and offer feedback and criticism. It's like, why you should respect your elders because they have a lot of information to draw upon to help you. And that's what criticism is. I mean, sure. It's whether you like it or not, or you think other people's will or, you know, will like it or not. But if you're informed or you have information draw upon, it could be more targeted feedback. It could be more useful or relevant information. So no, I don't think so. All right. 
Yeah, you know, I you make a great point because the you know for what we've talked about, you know, just going back in conversations we've had in the past, the a film critic should just at least be an independent voice and have an opinion that isn't so much swayed by their current culture, I guess, but more of just have like have their own developed taste that an audience can draw on. But beyond that, like when you start putting in requirements, it it almost allows for being elitist, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You gatekeep your profession, and you know you you gatekeep it. You make it. Yeah, I I don't think so. I think to be a critic is to have an opinion, and you don't need any training at all to have an opinion. You just may have a shitty opinion, or one that's not <laughs> widely appreciated. <laughs> you know, I do. I do think that. Uh, we see a lot of shitty opinions, and uh, I, I think uh, I think you and I will talk about film criticism more in the future. Just the current state of it, you know. We've kind of talked about different ideas for episodes, so I don't want to yeah. hit too much on that. I want to save that for a future time. And uh, really, I, I guess I only have one question left. Everything else we kind of hit on, or you already answered, so I put that question off to the side. And uh, this last question is. Which you kind of already hit on earlier, but I really want to hit it again and just kind of be like this as a use this as a wrap up point. For the questions: Do you think it's possible, if time and money and resources were not an object, to have an objective best film? This could be, like you said, gathering all the engineers and film people and everything uh, to create some kind of criteria to make a best film, or will it always just be subjective or personal preference? Mm, this is a, I'm having extreme internal conflict right now. That's why because <laughs> I'm convincing myself of one answer, then I'm convincing myself of another answer. It's the way to go. So let me let me walk you through my thought process here. The logical side of me is telling me it will always be subjective, and you can't you can't manufacture a best film, quote unquote. Because with time, you know, society changing, opinions changing, all these things, you know, like Gone with the Wind. Oh, greatest movie of all time. You ask people now, you know, a lot of them don't give a shit about Gone with the Wind. (laughs) You know, they'd say Titanic or, you know, whatever, you know, some other recent film that's more plugged into where they're at uh, in society and and, in time and, and, you know in history. So no, but I I don't think you can. What I think you could do though, is you could with infinite money, whatever, you could manufacture something that appeals to the widest amount of people as possible, that highlights fundamental truths of being human, that people can connect with deeply, that would stand the test of time but would never retain its status as the greatest film of all time because I think what people pick as their best film or their artwork or whatever is really a reflection of where they are in life and what they hold to be near and dear to them at that moment in their life. Like when I think about pieces of art or music or movies or games that I think are the greatest of all time, They've changed as I've grown and developed into a different person. Now, there are things that are universally loved, acclaim and stuff like that. And everyone, oh, Forrest Gump, or, you know, whatever movie, just 
fill in the blank. Oh, we all get around. Oh, yeah, have you seen? Oh, that's great. I, I really like that. But I think the greatest film of all time differs person to person and is really a reflection of their own values and, and where they are in their life. You know, there was a time when like Goodfellas was my favorite movie of all time and it's still up there. I love Goodfellas, you know, um, but that's not my favorite movie of all time anymore. You know, I, I would say there will be blood, but even then, you know, there will be blood as a reflection of like ambition in my opinion. And I'm an ambitious person. So it reflects a value that I have in my current life. As I've started to find more balance in my life and learn and sit here and reflect on kind of where I'm at and what I'm doing, I fall back to the curious case of Benjamin Button. You know, David Fincher is one of my favorites. But that story is, a you know, fundamentally, I think it's a story about a man who's okay being alone and has to be alone in the world. And to me, that's a reflection of where I'm at in my life is, you know, there are times, a lot of time in my life right now where I experience new things alone. And that is a piece of art that I can connect with and I can sit there and I can champion, I can find comfort in. So, you know, this is my long roundabout way of saying, no, I don't think there's an, an objective best film I think the things that people connect with, with art, music, movies, whatever, really is tied to who, who they like, where they're at in their journey in life. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that's why art is so diverse and far reaching and expansive because uh, art is there to comfort the soul in the way that, you know, building bridges and all that don't, all that allows us to live, but to really live is to enjoy art. That's really well said. I think that's a that's a perfect way to to wrap up my fifteen provocative questions. <laughs> those were good questions, man. I really liked those. Thank you. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if we should run it back and just flip it, where you you have to go through them, or if I should springboard off those and iterate and uh, try and put something forward that is equally provocative, or or you know at least interesting, intriguing enough to, you know, get the conversation going, but I enjoyed it. This was an interesting episode concept. Yeah. I really liked it. I think we should definitely do this again. You could use some of my questions, but, uh, you know, come up with your own. I was, I, I, I really thought about these in, in relation to you and conversations we've had in the past, you know, so these were, these are more questions I wanted to hear your opinion on. Long I form. should make a Andrew specific. Yeah. <laughs> I won't be lazy. I'll, I'll make <laughs> I think that's, yeah, I think you're right. Um, okay, before we sign off, what is one piece of media, it could be film, television, music, whatever, that you've watched recently or like experienced, consumed that has stuck with you? I have one, but just plug it, then I'll plug mine and we'll conclude. All right, I want to plug Dark Winds, and how's uh, that? That is a a show set in the seventies about a Native American sheriff trying to solve a crime on the reservation, and it has to do with interactions with the FBI, Native life. It's a show starring uh, almost exclusively Native Americans, uh, 
you know, directed by Native Americans. It's got great cultural references. I loved it. Watched it with my father over a recent uh, week trip I took out to visit my parents. And I just nice. thought it was a really enlightening show to watch. What's it uh, on? What network? It's on, on AMC. Oh, sweet. All right. Cool. I guess that's a good, like, primer, at least uh, appetizer, if you will, leading into Killers of the Flower Moon, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly what we decided to watch it, actually. <laughs> oh, nice. All right. Cool. <laughs> um, I will add that to my list. I recently, I know I'm late to the party, uh, recently watched both seasons of The White Lotus, and I waited a long time to do it, but it, I believe the hype now. I really love The White Lotus. Um, you know what I think The White Lotus is, though? I think what it does is it takes reality TV and makes it a serious drama show. It does. It's a well-acted Tell me if, am I show. wrong? If I, am I no, off base? No, no, that's, that's exactly what it is. It, it's like schlock with depth. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. Like I was sitting there like, why am I watching this? So like, I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> and I was like, because it's just a bunch of drama with people. Like it's just people's <laughs> lives falling apart. And you normally see that in reality TV, which I don't watch a whole lot of reality TV. I don't watch any reality TV, but a lot of people love it. And I was like, you know, I think that's what this is. It's just packaged in a, I mean, it's smart. It's, it's interesting and, you know, it's well-written and all that well-acted, but I think it uh, itches or scratches that itch for, for me or for people that sometimes you just want to watch like dramatic things unfold and things just spiral kind of out of control because our lives are so neatly ordered, you know, society, you know, presents this neatly ordered way of living. Sometimes you just want to watch Jennifer Coolidge take a dive off a boat. Yeah. Or the world burn <laughs> like the Joker. Yeah. All right. Well, I think um, those are two good plugs at the end there. Um, thank you, Andrew. Those were good questions, and I look forward to the next episode. So, yeah. Thank you for, for taking the time to answer them, Zach. All right, folks. With that, we bid you adieu.